0: It's time for Legally Speaking, joined as always by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How are you doing? Good morning. Uh, always great to be here. I'm doing well. I've had a lot of people asking me complicated questions, Michael, about things like blocking a highway, about things uh, such as whether it's a criminal offense, whether they can sue somebody that blocks a highway. Of course, I'm not a lawyer. You are, and you have done some preparation to help us better understand how these issues intersect with the criminal justice system. Take it away.
1: Well, uh, happily on on this front, the legal answer is relatively straightforward, and I must say it's not every day you can say that. Uh, So the the legal answer to whether you're permitted to block a highway uh, in order to conduct a protest, the answer is no. Uh, And the answer comes from Section 423 of the Criminal Code, uh, which makes it uh, an offence punishable either by indictment or by uh, summary conviction, Uh, for a person to uh, do something designed to compel somebody from uh, not doing something they're lawfully have a right to do, like traveling down the highway. Um, And and indeed, it expressly prohibits, in Section 423, Sub 1, Sub G, uh, an act of blocking or obstructing a highway. Uh, That section of interest was actually referenced by the judge uh, when uh, granting the initial uh, injunction Uh, from blocking the uh, uh, logging uh, in uh, the Ferry Creek area uh, because uh, the uh, judge commented on it in the sense of whether it uh, was uh, possible to get uh, an injunction prohibiting something which was already a criminal code offence, right?
2: Yes, Um, the enforcement um, gap issue,
1: yeah. Yeah, and the judge concluded, yes, indeed, you you can still get an injunction for something which would independently be a criminal offence. Um, Now, the other thing to be said about that uh, is that some wrongly have uh, referenced the provisions of Section 2 of the Charter uh, as uh, somehow an exception to that uh, uh, criminal code prohibition on blocking a highway. Um, Section 2 of the Charter uh, affords the right to freedom of thought, belief, opinion, and expression, including freedom of the press and other means of communication. Uh, And indeed, that is an important uh, Charter-protected right. But the right to freedom of opinion and expression doesn't provide the right to express yourself in any way you like, um, right? You, you, you might feel very strongly about a topic, but you're not permitted to go and spray paint it on the side of a bus. No. Even though, yes, indeed, that's a form <laughs> of expression for sure, uh, but it's still unlawful. It's mischief. You can't do that. Yes. Um, and so it's not a matter of degree. Um, it's a matter of you can't block a highway. It's a criminal offense. You can't do that, period. You do have the right to freedom of expression, but you do not have the constitutional right to express yourself in any way you like. Uh, And so... Uh, the only thing uh, preventing the uh, arrest of uh, people who are blocking the Pepe Highway is, is the discretion of the police who are there, right? Yes. Uh, and the police, of course, have wide discretion in terms of how they might choose to enforce the uh, law. Um, you know, for example, uh, police have uh, uh, standing policy. Most do, for example, when there's somebody who might be engaged in a high-speed Chase like if you have somebody who you know takes off from a roadblock, the ordinary police response is not going to be to chase them through the city of Victoria dukes of hazard style leaping over uh you know uh rivers and this kind of thing. uh the idea there would be, look, yes, I appreciate that person is uh fleeing, but uh, get a description, get the license plate number, radio ahead, put down a spike belt. Not everything is going to require. Uh, the, the most immediate forceful action but that's just entirely a function of police discretion in terms of how they choose to uh, enforce the law and so the the clear legal answer here is uh, no right to uh, block a highway it is a criminal offense uh, there's absolutely a right to express yourself and to hold whatever beliefs you see fit you just can't express yourself in that way Um, And we've seen uh, also this week uh, one of the early examples from the uh, Supreme Court uh, enforcing uh, the uh, injunction against blocking uh, the highway and logging uh, efforts by uh, uh, Teal Cedar Products. Yes. Um, And uh, this was a uh, sentencing uh, that occurred up in Nanaimo this week. Um, It was a uh, 26-year-old who had in contravention of the uh, injunction Uh, locked herself to somebody else in a, quote, sleeping dragon, arms locked in a pipe, uh, blocking the road. Uh, She was arrested. She pled guilty at an early opportunity uh, to uh, criminal contempt. Um, The Crown, in that case, sought a $1,500 fine. Um, uh, Her lawyer asked for a fine of $300, pointing out her modest uh, uh, income. I think she was a dance instructor. uh, and pointing out that she has no previous uh, record. Yes. Uh, the judge nonetheless imposed the $1,500 fine recommended by the, or asked for by the Crown, uh, bearing in mind that the uh, principles of sentencing, when sentencing somebody for criminal contempt, uh, the first consideration is denunciation and deterrence. Yes. Uh, and the need to maintain the rule of law. Uh, The judge uh, did, however, take into account uh, the fact that uh, she was remorseful, uh, that she pled guilty at an early opportunity, uh, that she had no previous record. Um, She was young, 26 years of age, um, and the judge uh, allowed that uh, if she pays the first $1,000 of the fine as ordered uh, and uh, avoids uh, any uh, further breaches of the uh, court orders for a period of one year, uh the judge would uh the judge permitted the fine to be reduced on uh if she does those things to an amount of $1000. So um the judge also pointed out uh that the that sentence was one which would i think quite properly be described as one that's uh um sort of modest in the circumstances. Yes. Yeah. And the court of appeal has previously set out how these things are to be Uh, approached, and ordinarily what will happen is the court would start with um, uh, lesser penalties and and then uh, will increase them over time if the contemptuous activity continues, Yes, Um, and will simply increase them uh, endlessly until eventually compliance is uh, achieved. And so the message here should not be that uh, a fine would necessarily be the outcome for somebody who were to breach an order now. In fact, that may be quite unlikely
2: yeah.
1: um, because the, uh, the clear law that the penalties are to uh, increase uh, until uh, compliance is achieved. Uh, but that's what was done uh, in that case,
0: and I was reviewing some of the um the details around that case, Michael. And it does seem fair because this is a person who, as you've mentioned, does not have a violent or criminal history. In fact, does not have a history of causing problems at all. Genuinely was concerned about biodiversity loss and destruction of the natural habitat. Someone who is remorseful, who admits that what they did was wrong, who says they won't do it again. Um, I I think that it's it, it's appropriate for the court to show the sort of uh, relative leniency that it is here and saving any harsher penalty. Penalties are actual jail time from those who demonstrate intransigence or a lack of willingness to
1: defer to the court and obey. That's right. And the judge pointed those things out, right? The fact that she admitted her contempt at an early opportunity, uh, was respectful, remorseful, uh, pled guilty, uh, all of those things, and the background that you mentioned, all of that was taken into account when uh, concluding that a financial penalty rather than a jail sentence was the uh, appropriate outcome. Uh, for that particular individual and judge pointed out of course as well that sentencing is an individualized process and while the you know principal considerations for criminal contempt are deterrence and denunciation of the conduct to maintain respect for the rule of law the court is required to take into account of course all the personal circumstances of the uh, person who is guilty of criminal contempt uh, when determining what would be the fit sentence for them. And so I, th- I think that's uh, that's what we saw here.
0: All right, let's take our first break. When we come back, Legally Speaking continues on CFAX 1070, that ministerial order with respect to gasoline rationing. We'll go through it, why it's interesting from an economics perspective and perhaps a legal perspective. As Legally Speaking continues here on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, the various debates that we've had over the years about infrastructure such as the excuse me, the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain expansion for the pipeline have given uh, ordinary persons such as myself a crash course in things like section or the sections of the Constitution Act that deal with interprovincial undertakings, lines of steam and other ships. Things like uh, laws of general application with Campbell Bennett uh, versus or Com- Midwestern Limited, 1954. That was one of the uh, cases that you helped us understand exactly how that whole thing fits together. Now we're taking a look at an order with respect to gasoline consumption here in BC because of, among other reasons, Trans Mountain has been shut down. Seems to all revolve around this pipeline. Take us through this order.
1: Sure. So this is an order, it's Ministerial Order 454, and it's under the Emergency Program uh, Act. We are, of course, back in an emergency. Yeah. Um, and, and there are a number of things about the order that are interesting uh, from both a Canadian perspective and, uh, I think, perhaps from an economics perspective. The origin of the problem here, the bigger fuel supply problem, in addition to the Malahat one that seems to have been getting ironed out,
2: yeah.
1: uh, is that a very large portion of the... Uh, Uh, fuel uh, for cars in British Columbia comes through the Trans Mountain pipeline in the form of either uh, crude oil, which then gets refined in Burnaby or through a trunk line in Washington state. uh, And as well, uh, a significant portion that isn't refined in those places comes through the same pipeline as refined gasoline. Yes. Uh, And the alternative uh, largely is by train, which, of course, hasn't been functioning either, hence the uh, shortage of uh, fuel. Yes. Um, And so this ministerial order is intended to address that. Um, First of all, with respect to the pipeline, if you look at what the... uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline or people are saying it's sort of they're hopeful if everything goes well, uh, no other problems occur all these various provisos uh, that by the end of the week uh, they should have the pipeline partially running again. Um, so let's hope the uh, uh, we don't get uh, a whole bunch more rain in the next couple of days. So this order, uh, most people are familiar with of course the uh, limits that have been placed on gasoline purchases so this is the order uh, that uh, prohibits, uh a purchase or anyone knowingly selling more than 30 liters of fuel at any time uh, for somebody who doesn't have an essential vehicle like a police car or fire truck or you know uh, some of those sort of categories of things yes but other interesting aspects of it first of all there's a nice canadian aspect to it uh, sub-six of the order says this A person must not engage in abusive or belligerent behavior towards another person in relation to the other person's effort to comply with or enforce this order. Interesting. we actually have a nice provision: be polite. (laughs) Or else. Uh, Or else. I'm not quite sure how the admonition to be polite causes people to be polite. It's kind of like the sign that says, please obey what's written on signs. Uh, But... Uh, the other interesting element of this from an economics perspective is uh, paragraph four of this ministerial order, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, provides that uh, essentially the retailers and wholesalers of gasoline fuel uh, are not permitted uh, to increase prices such that their uh, gross profit margin would be greater than their profit mar- gross profit margin for the 90 days immediately preceding the date of the order which is interestingly worded. So it's yeah. no gouging. I guess that's how that would be described. Yes, But collectively, those two things, I'm not sure that they, uh, you know, certainly I think the idea of not allowing gouging when there's limited supply and no real competition uh, is probably a wise idea. But I'm not sure uh, whether those two things, the limit on the amount somebody can purchase, as well as they, uh, trying to limit the price of something, necessarily fits with principles of economics, right? Ordinarily, the way you try to ration something which is in short supply is by price, right? So if the price goes up, people will consume less of it. Exactly. Um, And there's been some interesting studies on that in terms of gasoline. Like at one point, we seem to think, well, it's basically inelastic. Like if you raise the price, gasoline prices went up, the prevailing wisdom seemed to be, well, that'll make no difference. People just have to get to work or pick up their kids or get to the hospital. So they'll just pay any price. But Recent studies show that that's not necessarily so. Um, and uh, there are, are some recent studies that show that, in fact, even in the short term, when somebody couldn't go and buy a more efficient vehicle or buy a bike or something else, uh, that price fluctuations in gas actually make a difference. Uh, and the degree to which they make a difference appears to be about 0.37% per 1% increase in gas prices. So if you raise gas prices by 1%, you're going to expect to see a, a short-term decrease in demand of about 0.37%. Interesting. So if they don't get the pipeline back up and running this week and we have a longer-term shortage of gasoline, I think there's a public policy question here about do we continue with a policy intended to try to restrict uh, how much you can buy each time along with an effort to keep prices low or Would it make sense to, for example, implement a short-term emergency tax on gasoline, perhaps to help pay to fix all the roads and bridges that are washed out um, in a way that would increase the price and uh, therefore decrease the demand, causing people to take short-term steps like, well, I guess maybe I'll carpool or maybe I won't load up, you know, six jerry cans to be ready to refill the uh, lawnmower next summer or something. You could raise the price and it looks like – Uh, you know, economics tells us that indeed, even in the short term with gasoline, it would have the effect of decreasing prices. And so if the pipeline isn't back up and running as we would hope it would be, uh, there may be uh, room for some consideration about whether the combination of uh, trying to restrict demand by uh, restricting how much you can buy and keeping the prices low, uh, whether we're fighting the laws of economics there, or whether there might be some response like what I've suggested in the short term, if you said, "Look, there's going to be yeah. a you know significant tax on gas for two weeks. Only buy it if you need it. Don't fill up your lawnmower or top up your tank." Um, whether that might uh, be more effective than uh, hoping everyone is going to be polite and respect the signs taped to gas, ca- uh, you know, gas pumps, uh, and uh, the provision telling you to be not be belligerent. <laughs> So um, anyway, let's, hope they get, let's hope they get the pipes fixed. I just, <laughs> you could always, worry
0: about it. you can always reflect upon the regular clientele at any establishment where there's a sign on the wall expressly prohibiting belligerence from taking place. Uh, it's every time, anytime I see a warning written somewhere, I'm thinking somebody somewhere caused that. So perhaps that says yeah. more about us than it does about <laughs> the regulation itself. Uh,
1: we also and, and have, and, and yeah? If that sign doesn't work, the one telling you not to be belligerent, you can install a second sign next to the first sign that says, make sure you adhere to everything written on signs. Absolutely. Maybe that'll really, that'll produce some extra oomph to get that second <laughs> sign work. Uh, we do have one more matter to discuss this uh, week. It's a
0: marijuana trafficking sentence overturned in the court of appeal. We've got five and a half minutes.
1: Yes, indeed. So this, I must say, is probably one of the last cases we're going to see of this uh, kind, right? Uh, because of how we've changed, uh, how we've dealt with cannabis over the past few years, yeah. right? Um, You know, it's gone from the point where when I started uh, practicing, they would uh, prosecute people for, you know, tiny amounts of marijuana found in their pocket when arrested for something else to the point of in the middle of a pandemic, the government selling marijuana in stores is an essential service and we must keep it open (laughs) at all costs. So we've really come quite a distance here. We have. Uh, And so this was a Court of Appeal decision which uh, followed from, a prosecution of a man from back in 2017, right, as things were getting ready to change, uh, who was uh, selling marijuana at a compassion club. Uh, And he made a constitutional argument about whether that should be permitted. Constitutional argument didn't work. He then had a trial. He was convicted. (laughs) He appealed the conviction, arguing again the constitutional issue for the now defunct law. That failed. And so finally, that's why it is uh, that in 2021, we have the Court of Appeal now dealing with the sentence appeal from the sentence that was imposed on the man. And the reason for that is that if you have both a conviction appeal and a sentence appeal by an accused person, the Court of Appeal would deal first with the conviction appeal because, of course, if that works, you then don't need to deal with the sentence appeal. So doing it in the reverse order wouldn't make any sense. And so that's why it is that Uh, this matter is still being dealt with in 2021 as the government has marijuana stores all over the place Um, and what happened is following the man's uh, conviction uh, the man had uh, asked for uh, what's referred to as a conditional discharge and a conditional discharge would be associated with a period of probation and if you successfully complete the period of probation you then would be deemed not to have been convicted of the offense and that can be meaningful for marijuana and other drug offenses because if the offense shows up on your criminal record there's no way you're getting across the border into the u.s because they'll be aware of it Uh, and so uh, or many other countries in fact where we might share that information and here the man had asked for a uh, conditional discharge uh, but instead the uh, judge imposed a a sentence that wasn't a a discharge of various one-day jail sentences Uh, and uh, a $250 fine, which, of course, doesn't sound too onerous, but it meant that he wound up with a criminal conviction for something that's now lawful, meaning that he would have uh, potential difficulties being able to uh, travel. And so that's why it was important to him. And the case is also an interesting one, even though the subject matter is no longer going to be uh, too uh, relevant because we no longer deal with marijuana in this way. Mm. But the Court of Appeal found that the judge made an error because the judge failed to, in the judge's reasons, um, sort of square up and address what this man had asked for, right, this conditional discharge. And the man at sentencing didn't have a lawyer, so it wasn't the most, uh, uh, you know, the longest submission for why he should get a discharge. But the Court of Appeal found that because the judge failed to address why the conditional discharge would not be appropriate. And there's a test for it from a case called Regina versus Fallowfield that analyzes whether the discharge would be in an offender's best interest and then whether it would be contrary to the public interest. And because the uh, judge didn't address that and go through the test and explain why the judge didn't think that was an appropriate sentence, that that amounted to a material error. Uh, And so that was the basis for the Court of Appeal uh, overturning uh, the one-day sentence and the $250 fine and instead imposing the conditional discharge that had been asked for. And so the other interesting takeaway, in addition to the fact that this man's probably the last man to be sentenced for uh, this particular offense in Canada, um, is that it stands for that important principle, which is that a judge needs to explain themselves and how they're coming to their decision. They don't just come out and give a thumbs up or thumbs down. Uh, and that wasn't done here, and that was the basis to interfere with it. Um, so that's, I think, the uh, important takeaway there. The, the final bit of legal news for this week is that Supreme Court judges have renamed themselves. Really? Uh, and so we used to use in court for Supreme Court judges, it was my lord, my lady, yes. your lordships, your ladyship, right? Yes. The uh, Supreme Court sent out a directive this week that all those terms are now to be avoided, and I must say, I think they kind of missed out on an opportunity here in the past, there was a movement by some Supreme Court judges to adopt your honor, which was the term used in provincial court. Yes. Uh, and of course, it's gender neutral, which is one of the other things they've been sort of aiming for by having people uh, indicate what pronouns are preferred for counsel and clients. Yes. But instead of going with your honor, they've the directive indicates that the new mode of address, because lord" and malady are to be avoided, will be justice, madam justice. Mr. Justice, or interestingly, Chief Justice or Associate Chief Justice, which previously, of course, all of us in the know would have known exactly who the Chief Justice was. Yes, But now they've directed that there be that form of address in court, Hmm. which is an interesting move. The other challenge here, it seems to me, is that we are still left with Mr. Justice or Madam Justice uh, rather than Your Honour, which would be more neutral. I Hmm. suppose we could all just use the justice option there. Uh, but I, I'm not sure we advance the ball too much by maintaining the Mr. and Madam Justice. Also, the adding the Chief or Associate Chief Justice reminds me a little bit of the U.S. Uh, former uh, Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, Rehnquist, uh, who decided uh, that he needed or, or gold uh, um, tassels put around his arms to differentiate himself from all the other just mere Supreme Court judges. Uh, and so he made up his own uniform uh, to wear into court. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, re- the most recent U.S. Supreme Court uh, chief justice uh, went away from that and no longer has the gold armbands sewn on his uh, on his robe. <laughs> but uh, in any case, don't don't get, get rid of my lord, my lady. Okay. There to be avoided is now justice matter, Mr. Associate or chief justice if you're in Supreme Court.
0: Yeah, it's like the, uh, the top judge in the country. What do they wear on their armband? It's the same answer to the question of where does a 500 pound gorilla sleep anything they want or anywhere they want.
1: I want to say the, the Canadian Supreme Court was taken down a notch or two on U.S. late-night TV this week when the uh, picture of them wearing their red robe oh, yeah, white fur around it was uh, <laughs> trotted out uh, and making fun of them looking like a group of people dressed up like Santa Claus. So I guess the moral of the story is no matter what, you, what position you wind up uh, in life, uh, <laughs> you're, you're not immune to being taken down a notch or two uh, by <laughs> the outfit you're wearing.
0: Michael Mulligan, pleasure as always. Until next week. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Michael Mulligan with Legally Speaking here on CFAX 1070.